Patient No Longer is a podcast featuring leaders in healthcare who are inspiring a positive shift in the customer experience and human understanding. In this podcast, we interview people who are from all areas of healthcare that are impacting the healthcare consumer journey of care. My name is Ryan Donahue, solutions expert and strategic advisor with NRC Health. And it's a pleasure to host Patient No Longer, a podcast in search of what's new, what's next, and what makes healthcare human again. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Patient No Longer podcast. I am joined today by our guest, Ophelia Byers. Hi, Ophelia. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you in. Ophelia joins us from the Atlantic Health System. She's Chief Nursing Officer of Overlook Medical Center. She's also Associate Chief Nursing Executive for the entire system. She's got more than two decades experience in clinical care and nursing leadership. She's an advocate for diversity and inclusion in healthcare. She's written about the impact of racism-related stress on Black nurses. She also has a coaching business called Citroom, which provides situational guidance and coaching practice for folks in formal leadership roles. And she intensely studies ideas surrounding organizational leadership and culture as well. It was a pleasure to be part of the CEO roundtable at the Governance Institute last week. And we had a number of CEOs around the room and we said, what's the number one challenge? And all of them said workforce. And it struck me because in 2019, I did a series of interviews about the biggest challenges facing the CEO and workforce was never number one. So now workforce has shot to the top and I want to start there. You know a lot about what's happening inside of healthcare organizations, but also the industry. Tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on where the industry is with workforce right now. Well, Ryan, thank you for sharing your observation. It's telling that workforce has become number one. I would have loved to have known that it always was, but conditions in our world have changed that greatly. Largely, I would say due to the pandemic, people are having different experiences than they were previously which makes complete sense. Everything from different stressors at home, unique stressors at work and healthcare in particular, very profoundly affected by the pandemic, given the nature of it. And Talon is telling us that it's time for a new way of thinking and a new way of working and being. We see the burnout, the moral distress that team members are experiencing in all industries, the financial impact. It's time for us to start listening to our team members who are telling us if you're not willing to reimagine, if you're not willing to think about work differently, think about work-life balance or life-work balance, as some say, then we will find employers who will. It's definitely a time for leaders to listen now more than ever. Again, I wish we had always been in that space, but glad to see that shift. I like the way you say life-work balance, but I think one of the more poignant things that you mentioned was we need to have a new way of thinking, working, and being. And some of that, of course, is outside of our workplace. Whether we're in healthcare or anywhere else, people go home and they have their lives. And our pediatric collaborative at NRC Health, we were looking at parents, not just when they're 
having a child in pediatric care, but when they're trying to parent that child at home while they're on Zoom calls and their kids are home and just all of the effects of that. Do you feel like zeroing back into healthcare and nursing, for example, we ask nurses all the time how they like their job, how they like their manager. I mean, you could think through the standard, you know, employee engagement survey. What are your thoughts on that? And I have a feeling you're going to say that does not go far enough and doesn't measure the entire experience of being a nurse in this world. But are there other ways that we should be thinking about measuring that life-work balance? Well, right now, with my experience with employee engagement surveys, for example, which are absolutely useful tools, those questions aren't examining a life outside of work. They are very much focused on the employee experience within work. And that absolutely has value and certainly not suggesting that the question should include that, but our daily work should. Part of leadership should absolutely be engaging our employees around these more comprehensive assessments of their well-being not just how they're doing at work and do they have the tools to do their job as well while on site, but what is actually going on with them that may be affecting their performance. If someone's performing well, that's great. What's contributing to that? Tell me more about that. So leaders getting curious about their employees in an intentional way, understanding what's going well in a preventative approach, right? Not waiting until performance is waning or challenged to ask those questions, but to understand what makes them tick and what motivates them while things are going well. So that if there is a change, one, we can readily assess that. We can see it coming because we know what was going well. And then we can, to some degree, if not preempt it, intervene appropriately with a laser focus. But that does come with daily practice, daily leadership practice of understanding what's happening with our team members and our workforce at large. Once a year isn't enough with employee engagement survey. And again, those surveys are not comprehensive enough to understand lives outside of work. And one of the things that you're an expert on and have written extensively about is the stress, stress that nurses experience, stress that all the workforce experiences and I feel like those survey tools don't capture the heart of that stress and how tough it is on individuals. And I want to pose this to you in a way that acknowledges as the industry, we like to seize and destroy words by overusing them. I mean, quality, you know, is one in particular or transparency. We have these words that we've just used so much that so we don't know what they are. And I feel like sometimes this conversation about a stressed out workforce goes naturally into burnout or resiliency. I think I called burnout the B word when I was talking to a recent guest because you just hear that word burnout. You've heard it a thousand times and you already sort of have this connotation to it. I feel like resiliency is getting there, but you really talk about the heart of the issue is the stress that a caregiver feels as a person. Can you talk to me about that particular avenue of looking at the workforce and what they're going through? Absolutely. It's the idea that there are social stressors. People are whole human beings, right? Outside of work, there are lives happening. There are very unique experiences happening that have to do with, I think about the social determinants of health that we're aware of, economics, education, healthcare, our neighborhood environment, our community support. 
there are a number of things that are happening outside of work and understanding a bit about that. We can never understand every individual employee in totality. What we can do is set up structures and support and let people know that one, we're interested in knowing more about you and your lived experiences and how that impacts the energy that you bring into this workspace. We recognize that that it does impact it and we want to know the ways in which it does show up and then that there are resources that we have our employee assistance programs that are, again, focused on prevention, focused on being touch points when things are going well, those kinds of wellness check-ins and well-being check-ins, and then are there to support us when things aren't going well. So it is really inviting our employees to share the totality of who they are and having expert resources in place to support them when they are challenged. It's just, when we say bring our whole selves to work, we really need to understand what that means. It sounds really nice. It's a lot like what you said. It sounds nice to say, you know, we want you to be your full self, your authentic self, but are we ready for it? Are we ready as organizations, as leaders to receive that? Are we agile enough to support that? If someone is saying, my life just changed. I now have to take my children to school every morning before I come to work. And work starts at seven, but school doesn't start until eight. Do we have the structures in place to accommodate that employee? And those are questions that organizations have to ask themselves. Are we willing to lose an employee because we can't flex? And are we open to those variations that affect performance? It's a great point, you know, in the whole self piece. I don't think that that's ruined yet. And I, I've still heard that, you know, very little. And so I think it's refreshing to hear you talk about it. It reminds me of a project we did years ago. We wrote the Patient All Over book, which is sort of a follow-up to the picker work that occurred in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And of course, picker was about walking in the patient's shoes and trying to understand their perspective. I remember a time when we were trying to implement some of these patient experience questions into employee experience. Because we were saying, you know, we almost know more about our patients than our own employees, our nurses, our doctors, our, our various caregivers who are caring for that patient. We should know just as much or more about them. And we've taken that for granted. But what I remember, Ophelia, and I'll pose this as the next question, was that we struggled at times to get those questions implemented because people were so concerned about trended information and dashboards this is how I measure workforce, or this is how I measure how satisfied my employees are. And I've asked these questions for years and I don't want to sever trend lines and so on and so forth. And so I ask you from the point of stress, for example, I don't think most organizations understand how stressed out their workforce is and certainly can't quantify it in any meaningful way. They can quantify other things, but not stress. What do you say to an organization who has the want to but is afraid of changing how they measure those sort of situations among their workers? Oh, yeah, that's a really great question. I would probably start with more questions than advisement. It's a question of what do you fear about changing? What is the cost? What is the perceived pitfall? of changing how you view things because it gets back to the question of agility and it's 
something that we advise for our employees, right? The ability to be agile, the ability to proceed in times of uncertainty. And so how do we model that as leaders? And so you're going into territory that may be a little uncertain. Maybe you're going further away from quantitative data into qualitative with doing things like interviews or or listening sessions, for example. And so what resources do you need to support you in navigating this new territory? I think that from a almost a standpoint of empathy, we need to engage leaders to understand what their fears are. Understanding that leaders are also scared, a lot like employees, and need support in a different way than they did, say, pre-COVID. And it might be relying on different types of expert guidance than normal. It may not be your usual consultants. You might need some expert advice from a qualitative researcher, for example, to understand how they take narratives, which are extremely important and compelling, and turn that into data that can be used. Another piece that I always like to emphasize is the DIKW model. I learned it in a nursing informatics course in my doctoral program. And it suggests that there's data, but data feeds into information, information feeds into knowledge, and knowledge feeds into wisdom. And data really is a very rudimentary form. You still have traveling to get to, to get to wisdom. And along that journey, is taking into consideration lived experiences and personal narratives. That's what gets you to wisdom. And so when we're so focused on data, we are still really kind of at a very fundamental, basic level. And I would like to see more organizations get to a point of being wiser about their workforces. Well, you know, you feel like there's a lot of organizations that stay stuck on D and then the next survey comes around and the next batch of data and you kind of end up on a hamster wheel. You know, you said something interesting about leadership and really the psychology of why sometimes those changes don't take place. And that's like our leaders might be afraid. And I agree with you. I think sometimes we use the, oh, we have trending or here's the way the system is. Those really aren't the primary reasons. They're sort of put up as distractions or as blockers because we're afraid to change. And you've alluded to leadership a few times already, so let's go there, because I like what you said about having leadership that's truly curious, having leadership that's willing to learn and be vulnerable. So let's talk about that part of it. Let's say we can make some headway, we're measuring the right things, but without leadership being there to you know enact the change and to be behind it, it often fails. The question for you is, you know, we put a lot of trust and we put a lot of faith in our leadership, I think just sumptively, you know, is that trust misplaced right now? We've got leaders who their hair's on fire. There's so much turnover and change among executive leadership right now in healthcare. When you're going out to the typical employee, how does leadership build trust with them? I don't think that the trust is misplaced. It's important that we trust our leadership. It's also important that leaders trust their workforce, their team members, trust that they know their job, trust that the person closest to the work is the best knower of that work and are experts in their own right. 
and leaders in their own right. They're leaders in what they do every day. So it's trusting that. It's also trusting ourselves to do this work well. It's trusting ourselves to be vulnerable, to be honest, to be, there's that word, transparent. So trust has these far-reaching implications, right? And it has to be all around and from every direction where we are seeking out information, realizing that we are not all-knowing, wanting to get knowledge and wisdom from everyone in the organization, regardless of their role, that we're willing to go outside of our organizations and even outside of our industries to learn lessons. Sometimes we can be very encapsulated and we're limiting ourselves in that way. So I think that when our team members see that we are imaginative that way, that we are expansive in our leadership practice, again, that we are interested in learning and developing each day, that we're modeling the things that we say we want them to do. That's something that often team members, where trust gets lost, is that we are not necessarily modeling the very things that we expect. If we are doing those things and that we are honest about the fact that we don't have all the answers and that we are seeking them and that we're on a journey with our team members to get to the best possible answer for right now. It may not even be for always, but that we're always open to reimagining, tweaking, that we're engaging our team members in that process of quality improvement. And there's that word quality. But I think the quality improvement process can be applied to everything. And it always means engaging the voice of the people that it affects. And that's not just the customer or client in, in healthcare, the patient, but it's also the internal customer, which is the team member. And as long as our team members feel that we're on the journey together and that they are a line of sight into the decisions that are being made, even if they're not often the decision makers, but they know that they're informing the decisions, there will be trust. That's such a great example, too, of that two-way street of trust. I remember a project where it was actually for external advertising, but the organization took the time to show the ads to internal caregivers first. They really weren't even asking for feedback. They got some feedback, but they weren't really asking for feedback. But just that simple gesture of including people so that they didn't, you know, see the new ad campaign on the highway along with all the other drivers who weren't driving into work there, that meant a lot to them. Those simple gestures are so important. I want to take it from another angle too, though, because you mentioned, you know, there's limits to these things and there's limits to what leaders can do. I've seen great leaders who just cannot, they can't do the work. And sometimes you need that groundswell. Are there times where you think, that leadership does their role, they're part of that, but that things need to happen from the ground up. Is there power in that as well? And then I suppose if that's happening, you know, how do leaders face that down without feeling threatened or feeling like it's got to come from them instead of the other direction? Because I love the two-way street. Absolutely. In nursing in particular, there is this paradigm called shared governance or professional governance. As I mentioned earlier, it's the idea that the person closest to the work is the best knower of that work and can generate the best ideas for how to resolve challenges. That needs to be a cornerstone of leadership practice, that understanding and that belief. It's not something that's 
separate. It's not an initiative. It's not something that we call on as needed, but it's the way that we move on a regular basis. On a regular basis, we are asking the person doing the work, having that direct experience. What do you think? How is it going? What could be better? What's going well? What do you want me to start, stop, continue? If that is a cornerstone of our practice, then we don't have to, again, call on it in times of crisis. It's just how we act because there are limitations to formal leadership roles. You don't have, especially the higher that you go, if you will, you don't always have a direct line of sight with your eyes only. And so if you see that there's a collective eye and a collective vision, then you do. But if you're relying only on your line of sight, you will be myopic. Absolutely, it is about professional governance and shared governance. You know, what you say about that person being closest to the work, knowing the work, I think ironically, sometimes leaders think, well, you're too close to the work. And so I've got to come out and tell you how it is. And then there's some natural friction with that because people say, but you're not close to the work. Whereas what I like about what you're saying is that it's okay for leadership to say there's limits to what we know and limits to what we can do. I think that immediately creates an authenticity of the leader. You don't have to be all and be everything. Because eventually you're always going to fail at that. No one can be all and be everything. So I really think that that's powerful. A lot of this too gets to, you know, you mentioned collectivism. So I'll throw out a couple more words. Cultural cultivation. This is something you've worked on. This is something we've talked about. And you and I have shared some great exchanges on culture and how important it is. But when a bunch of leaders are doing these things, that's part of culture. And of course, we know the famous Peter Drucker quote, culture eats strategy for lunch. In your mind and in your words, what is cultural cultivation? Cultural cultivation to me is growing and developing the culture, fostering. It is a facilitative effort. It is not a solo sport, certainly. It is not driving culture, right? This idea that we're pushing it along, but it is this idea that we are fostering, almost like gardening, right? It involves, one, learning the culture, understanding it, not going into it, leaning on our own understanding and our past experiences or transferring our ideas from past experiences to a new culture. But it is going in and saying, tell me who you are. Tell me what you're about. Tell me where you want to go. And also, of course, we want to say, this is who I am. So it's also introducing ourselves to the culture. Here's what I believe. Here's what my experiences are. Let's see how these things align. So it's all starting from one, being curious, asking questions, getting to know, connecting, finding that commonality, aligning, and then determining where we need to go together, how we're going to get there, what resources we need, who the stakeholders are. It's a number of those things. And then it's this process of continually monitoring the work that is being done. So we don't set it and forget it. It's not just about creating an action plan that looks really pretty on paper and presenting it and then letting it go. It is checking in, understanding is what is the intent showing up in the impact. 
and not just on the larger goal, but the people involved in it. Does everybody understand? That's a crucial conversation to have early on. When we name things, do we all agree on the meaning of what we're trying to do? That's a question that is not often asked and we can find out in the middle of a process that, oh, well, I meant this. <laughs> this is what high quality healthcare means to me. Well, this is what it means to me. So it's also agreeing on the definition of the goal. So it is a very complex process. It can be very enjoyable when done well. There will be missteps because we don't always think of everything. That's why connecting early and introducing ourselves to each other is so important. Establishing those relationships early on are, are very important because then people, when they understand your intent and they understand who you are, when there are missteps, there's empathy, there's forgiveness even, <laughs> because there's an understanding of who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. And so it starts with relationships. We have to value the relationships over just getting it done. And I would end with this difference between being outcomes driven and process driven. And we often find in organizations that we can be very outcomes driven. We just have to get to this goal. We have to achieve this particular metric. It's about the step. It's about the journey. And when we learn to appreciate the journey, when we learn to focus on mastery and not just an outcome, there is so much more appreciation for whatever the end result is, because that can change depending on how the process goes. So when we're not married to the end result, but we're really focused on having a good process that's enjoyable for all and inclusive for everyone, the goal is always going to be one that is collectively appreciated. When you said something really poignant in there about it not being a solo sport, and I do think to pick on the CEOs out there, not anyone in particular, but I do think sometimes you have CEOs who say, I've got to own the culture and I've got to set the tempo. And you nailed it on outcomes. I mean, we're so quick to do a cultural assessment, report it out to the board or executive leadership, and it's sort of like, okay, we're done. Whereas what you're describing is more of an exploration and, and a journey. And I think it's sometimes it's a lifelong adventure to understand culture. But what you said at the end is really interesting, and that leads me to a point I want to make sure I ask about, that it's inclusive for everyone. Let's talk about race and specifically racism. You've done a lot of work in this field to understand racism as a stressor. You've looked specifically at Black nurses on this topic. Tell us a little bit more about how that affects culture. Yeah, it kind of circles back to what we talked about, these social stressors. And part of the reason that my doctoral research was focused on race and racism was understanding that Black nurses, which was the demographic that I studied, are coming into work with a different kind of stressor. So they have all the same stressors as, say, their white counterparts, the same social stressors like a divorce, for example, or taking care of an elder loved one, or just high patient loads at work. So those similar stressors that are everyday, 
And then there's this additional stressor of racism. It is, you know, my child is out and about while I'm at work and is everything okay? Will they be stopped by the police, which is a common concern of her parents who have children who are driving, for example, or things of that nature that is on our minds. Or when we think about the inequities that we see in healthcare delivery that are reality, like the concerns around Black maternal morbidity and mortality, we may see patients of color or Black patients being treated differently. And all of those things affect how we not only perform, but how we're feeling psychologically, physiologically. Racism-related stress has implications for heart disease. It has implications for mental illness. So those are important stressors that I think organizations need to be keenly aware of and have supports in place to address that lived experiences matter. They affect how we show up. They affect how we cope with stress. So, you know, that be resilient, right? As you mentioned earlier, I do think that that is a word that's often overused. And one of the things that I say when leaders talk about resilience is I say, you know, where's our accountability in this as leaders? Resilience is a tool. It is not meant to be a state of being. It's meant to be something that you reach into your tackle box and you use to deal with a challenge or a crisis. Our accountability as leaders is to ensure that challenges and crises are not chronic states where people have to constantly use resilience. We should be able to be calm and at peace at work. It doesn't mean that we won't have a stressful day, but we should not be walking around in a ball of stress because of chronic challenging conditions. And so that is our job as leaders to address these structural issues that require resilience to be accessed often. It's interesting. Last summer, we had a guest on Patient No Longer, Dan Collard, who talked about how resiliency is sort of, it almost sounds like when a leader is throwing up their hands and doesn't know what else to do and says, well, just be resilient. And of course, that's the last thing that a stressed out caregiver uh, wants to hear. And you really wove in a couple of challenges there that add layers to this as an understanding. You know, there's stress, which is an industry we really don't think we measure very well among our workforce. But then there's racism-related stress, and that's really powerful. I want to ask you, because I think you also mentioned inequities, it flows from caregiver to patient and back, and it's really a two-way problem. DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, those programs exploded after George Floyd. They had a lot of momentum in 2020, 21, 22. I talked privately with someone who has led up and built some of those committees for some health systems over the winter. They have the sense that some of those things are sort of starting to lose ground. Now, we talked at the beginning about how healthcare takes things and uses them as words over and over and over until you almost don't hear them anymore. Where are you at with DEI initiatives? Do you still see momentum? Do you see anything that's changing or does it feel like we're sort of spinning our wheels on that? I am a firm believer that the work of DEI remains powerful, remains essential. 
One of the things that's important for organizations, anything new, if you will, and that's how the DEI was almost treated in 2020 was this new thing. And it really wasn't. That paradigm has been in existence for decades. And there are amazing scholars and experts in that field. But whenever we perceive that we're taking on something new, one important assessment that has to be done is readiness. What is our readiness? What is the readiness of the culture to do this work? And a lot of organizations were not ready. They brought in consultants. It's do the training check, we're done. And there was not that understanding of where are we truly with this? What have we been doing around this? I mean, after all, the Civil Rights Act was in 1964. <laughs> so it's what have we been doing? So that first, that assessment, where are our gaps? What is the gap analysis? What are we willing to do? What are we ready, willing, and able to do based on our current state? It might be baby steps, perhaps. It might be we just right now need to focus on diversity. Do we have representation of people of color, for example, at every level of the organization? Maybe we need to start there. Also, before we even start there, is the culture prepared to welcome and assimilate and it's, I know assimilation is often used pejoratively, but I see it as a taking in and a welcoming in and really immersing someone in our culture. Are we ready to do that? What is our team's understanding of what it would be like if we've been in a culturally or racially homogenous demographic, workforce demographic? Does our team understand that bringing in someone of a different demographic will be different. There will be different perspectives. There will be different worldviews. They will be challenged. Does our team understand that? And how do we prepare them? I would say there's probably not been enough preparation. There's not been enough self-assessment in a authentic and honest way. And bringing in the consultant for a few weeks or a few months or a few hours is not going to address that. There has to be very intentional daily work. So organizations that try to solve it with a check mark are probably the organizations that are struggling right now. And that is not a reason to say that DEI is fizzling. That's not on DEI. That's on the organizations to own and to pause and do a reset. It's so interesting too, because I think when something becomes fashionable, and you made a great point about how those programs have been around for a long time and the need has been around for a very long time, well prior to 2020. But sometimes when we look at a topic as, you know, there's a keynote speaker on it or it's this issue, it's so easy to look at it as fashionable and it's so easy to look at it as if we just talk about it, it solves the issue without bringing our whole organization into it. And if we're ready and what our gaps are before we can even get to creating change in that movement. And so you make an excellent point there. I'm curious too, just while we're talking about fashion and language and things changing, you're starting to see belonging added in. So DEIB. So where do you come out on belonging as a relatively new addition to that acronym? 
Yes, the acronym does. It definitely keeps growing. And that's because the work is so complex. Belonging. I see that around what we talked a little bit about earlier. Not only the bringing of one's full self, but the welcoming of one's full self. It is creating a culture and climate of psychological safety where it is not just about diversifying the workforce and having representation and putting someone in and saying, we did it. But it's also, what is that person's experience in the culture? How has that culture said, we want you here? We are interested in your worldview. We welcome your ideas. We are putting your thoughts into practice. We want you to see yourself reflected in our mission and our vision. That to me is where belonging comes in. So feeling that, not that I'm, I work here, just alone that I am here and I am the first or I am the only, which often people of color find themselves as well as LGBTQIA team members or disabled team members, not that I'm just representing, but that this organization understands how valuable my unique worldview is to its success and that it recognizes that it cannot be successful without these different perspectives and ideas. For me, that is belonging, is knowing that I am integral to the organization's success and that the organization recognizes that. It seems like there's no end to the damage that's created if someone doesn't feel like they belong or isn't treated as themselves. We've done a lot of work through human understanding on where you treat it as a unique patient. You can apply it to caregivers where you treat it as you. And when you're depersonalized or dehumanized, the effects are awful. It seemed to me that solving a lot of this comes down to empathy. It's not a corporate memo. It's not even just a great leader. It's not a mutiny among the nurses. It is about one-to-one saying, I empathize with you. Not just sympathize, but I empathize. You've done some work and you've got some opinions on that topic too. Is part of this, what we need is more empathy in healthcare. Yeah, it's what we need as humans. Empathy is defined a lot of different ways. Again, another kind of popular word, putting yourself in someone's shoes, imagining yourself in someone's shoes. I'd like to take it a step further and say, take yourself out of it. If you're imagining yourself in my shoes, are you listening to me or are you imagining yourself, right? How do we decenter ourselves and just listen? It's not about, oh, if that were me, I would. It's, oh, I don't know what I would do. I can't imagine what it must be like. Don't imagine, just listen. Just listen to what someone is saying. Ask better questions. Oh, thank you for sharing that experience with me. Tell me how it makes you feel. Tell me what you need to address that effectively. What does resolution look like to you? There's these you statements and there's no I involved when it comes to being empathetic. So, and it's a challenge, even as I say that, It's something that I myself struggle with because when someone say they have a loss, a lot of times when we 
hear about someone going through a tragic situation and evokes emotion in us, we have to ask ourselves, is that emotion for the person or is it us imagining if that happened to us? I have to say, when you said that, it felt like the room flipped upside down for a second because I was trying to think of the last few times I've tried to really try to show empathy. And I thought about myself as that person. I mean, that's a fantastic point of view. This flows right into the last question. And that is that you are in an elevator just before the doors close. Someone else walks in and they are on day one of their journey of whatever their career is going to be in healthcare. What is a piece of advice you would impart on them during that elevator ride? That's such a great question. So as a person, as a nurse executive, also as a coach, I often coach experienced leaders, emerging leaders. Your first day doesn't necessarily mean you're new to the profession. You could be experienced, but just new to that organization. And so I would simply say, trust yourself, start there. Trust that you were brought here because you have something amazing to offer this organization and its mission and its vision, that you are an integral part of the success of this team and what it seeks to accomplish. And once you understand that about yourself, I want you to understand that about every single person that you encounter in the organization, that they too are integral to the success. And that understanding of oneself and one's worth of what they bring, but also of what others bring is so key to anyone really doing well on a team and thriving there. Trust yourself. What an insightful comment for really an insightful conversation. We would love to have you back on, Ophelia. These are fantastic, really interesting angles on topics that, frankly, we talk a lot about, but I don't think we always understand and dig in deep and make change. And you certainly give us many things to think about and use in this conversation. I thank you for that. Thank you for the opportunity to share.